Welcome to the preaching podcast from the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church in Bonners Ferry, Idaho. In 1 Timothy 3.15, it says that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Therefore, we believe it is our duty to hold fast and to hold forth the truth, which is the Word of God. We're glad that you're listening and hope that you will be encouraged by what you hear today. may be seated. Speaking to a man today, and I, I know him, he is of a different persuasion uh, when, it, when it comes to the matters of the Bible. Um, I would not consider the man to be a saved man. He would think himself to be. He would project himself and present himself to be. And so I don't argue with him about it. I've known this man for a number of years. He's having some health problems. And we were talking today, and so he's talking to me by the way, I'll just kind of clue you in on something the Lord's helped me with, and, and if the Lord may correct this someday, say, no, Nevin, you're not doing this right. But when I, when I have somebody that I've heard their testimony, they're in perhaps some kind of a, a cult or some branch of religion that's false um, and has a false gospel, I'm going to try to speak to them about that. But when they present themselves to me as though we believe the same thing, I generally have learned, play along. Meaning, talk to them like they believe the truth. Just tell them the truth like you would anybody else. And normally it has this effect. You get to tell them the truth. They're telling you they believe the gospel. So just go ahead and communicate with them like, well, of course, then you understand this is what is true and important, right? So as we discussed some things today, and his health is bad, and I care if this man is, I would consider him a friend. I've known him that long, an older man. But we're discussing his health, and he said, of course, I want God I'm asking God to heal me, and I know he could. He said, I don't doubt God could heal me. And he said, thus far, he has not seen fit to do that. I said, I agree, he certainly could. And I said, don't you think, don't you think that the Lord sometimes does not heal our bodies so that we'll realize that this life isn't it and we'll get our mind on eternal things? Eh, yeah, I guess that's true. And as I listened to him, you could tell that's not where his mind is. His mind is on the here and now. His mind is fixed here, and I'm not, I don't fault him. If I had his illness, I would want to be healed. I would want to be prayed for to be healed. But there's something to getting a hold of the fact that the Lord Jesus came not to give us a better life here. He came to give us eternal life. May I say this? The life he leads you through in this life will keep you frustrated with him if you don't realize that his priority is on eternity. When you and I realize that as saved people, we have eternal life. We're not waiting to get it. We're not hoping to get it. We were given it the day God saved us. Then that puts this life into its proper perspective. We understand this life is but a vapor. Amen? It is here, and then it passes away. Too many, especially American Christians, have gotten wrapped up in trying to use Christianity to create their dream life here on earth. That's not why God saved us. God did not save us so that we can use our salvation as the tool to leverage this world for our benefit so that we're happy in this life. If in this life only we have hope in Christ Jesus, we are of all men most miserable. And I know tonight the Lord wants us to have our mind on eternal things, and I believe that's the emphasis of this message tonight. That may not be the primary purpose for the, uh, the, as far as 
uh, chapter 7. There's so many things you can glean, but I'll be honest with you, I do believe it is one of the primary purposes of what we're told here. We're going to understand there were people in this chapter whose life on this earth was a miserable existence. You read Luke chapter 16, you have two men. And by the way, this concept that gain is godliness is not a new concept. It was, that concept was alive and well when the Lord Jesus walked this earth, when the Pharisees and the doctors of the law and those who are very successful in this life were deemed as the most righteous among them. That's why when Jesus said how difficult or how hard it is for a rich man to be saved, the disciples were astonished and said, who then can be saved? If that rich young ruler isn't saved, then who would be? And he's doing it all right. He's done everything correct. Luke 16, you have the rich man and Lazarus, and the rich man fared sumptuously every day, doing well. And it's not, it's not wrong to have things in this life that God's blessed us with. That's not what he's saying. But when we put our confidence in those things, we put our affection on those things, we are not going to live for things eternal. We are not going to be able to follow the Lord like we should. And then so in Luke 16, you have the rich man who fared sumptuously every day. You had Lazarus whose existence in this life was miserable. But the moment they went into eternity, their roles reversed. The rich man was in hell and in torments for all eternity, and Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom never to know the misery he had known on this earth again. We must remember everything in this life will pass away. Everything. And this text tonight reminds us of that. As we see these who've come out of great tribulation and we see their perpetual happiness. The Bible says that in the Lord's presence is fullness of joy, and there are pleasures there forevermore. Every pleasure you and I have in this life goes away. There are things that were pleasant to me when I was a teenager, a child, and they're not pleasant to me anymore. I'll be honest with you. I have enjoyed going to um, amusement parks. I don't really care if I go to another one ever again. Now, some of my kids want to go some time. We take them fine, but that's not something that amuses me anymore. I mean, you know, when you get past a certain age, food that used to taste good doesn't taste good anymore. It's amazing how those things change. Every pleasure in this life goes away eventually. But in heaven, in the Lord's presence, there are pleasures forevermore. I believe that's the 16th Psalm that tells us that. And so tonight as we look at the provision for God's servants, let's look at verses 13 through 17. We'll give you five things here tonight. We see the Lord has provided for these his servants, these who are robed in white. Verse 13, the first thing we see is God has provided them purity. He has made them pure so that they can be in his presence. The Bible says in verse 13, one of the elders answered saying to me, what are these which are robed in white robes? Now we were already introduced to them in verse 9 as having on white robes. So one of the elders, it's almost like this. The elders, one of these elders is sitting here, he just, he's beside himself and he already knows who these people are. So he says, John, what are these? What are these? John says, you know, thou knowest, you tell me. You're the one that's here. I'm the one that's the visitor. You tell me, all right? So it's as though uh, it would kind of be like if one of your, your precious little kids walked up and you knew it was your child and you've you're got a guest with you and you're like, who do you think that little guy is? Well, I think you know. Why don't you tell me? You get the idea this elder is beside himself with what's taking place around the throne. He again, verse 13, one of the elders answered, saying to me, what are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? And I said to him, sir, thou knowest, and best, basically, you're going to have to tell me. And he said to me, these are they which came out of 
great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, I will just remind us tonight, anyone saved during the tribulation period, and you have to do your own homework in 2 Thessalonians chapters 1 and chapter 2, but anyone saved during the great tribulation it had not heard the gospel prior to the great tribulation. That's a key point for you to get a hold of. There's a lot of people that write about the coming days of judgment and the great tribulation, how people get saved, and it makes for neat movies and novels that are written to say, here was somebody and they noticed all these people disappeared and they said, the rapture must have happened. We need to get saved. No, no, no. If you know enough about the word of God to know that what took place is a rapture, you're not going to get saved. You're going to believe a lie. Strong delusion will be given so that you believe a lie. If you've heard the gospel before the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, for his church and before the tribulation begins and you've rejected the gospel, your opportunity of getting saved is done. These are people during the great tribulation who never heard the gospel. Now, I, I will just simply give you a thought. This is not doctrine. This is, not, this is just a thought I have as I read my Bible. One of the questions we get is, what about people who've never heard the gospel? What are they going to do? I believe this, based on what we're reading here and the thousands, if not millions of people saved that come out of the Great Tribulation, that there are going to be people that are going to have the opportunity to hear the gospel during that short period of time that never did before because of these 144,000. There's going to be those two witnesses, and the gospel will be preached. The, the gospel concerning the coming kingdom, right? So now it's not the gospel of, of grace in the sense of, we're not under grace, but the kingdom is coming. That's why this tribulation. And there are going to be people who will have opportunity to hear the gospel during the tribulation that did not have the opportunity prior to the tribulation. And thus many are going to be saved. May I say this though? Salvation, whether it is the gospel of grace or the gospel of the kingdom, salvation is always the same way through the blood of Jesus Christ by faith in his shed blood, not by works. You have false teachers teaching that during the tribulation you're saved by works. That is not in your Bible. Some clever guy with a Sharpie and a whiteboard may write that down for you and tell you that by his little charts, but he's going to have to twist Scripture to get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's a plain statement. When you read Romans chapter 4, you realize Abraham was justified by works or by faith? By faith. When you read Romans chapter 4, David, an Old Testament saint, saved by works or by faith? And then when you read Hebrews chapter 11, Abel was justified by faith. Noah was justified by faith. It is called the hall of faith, not the hall of works. Amen? So don't let somebody confuse you. During the Great Tribulation, here you have these that have come out of the Great Tribulation and what they've been given, their robes are a picture of their salvation. They have, the robe is what, is what we are arrayed in in the sight of God, and we know this so well. We've already looked at this before in Revelations we've been going through, but they're robed in white, and the Bible says, these are they which came out of Great Tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Though they suffered tribulation, you notice the Bible doesn't say they made their robes white through their endurance of tribulation. It was not the tribulation that purified them. It was the blood of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 12, and obviously we'll get there, but verse 11. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. 
He says, and I heard a voice, a loud voice, saying in heaven, now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused him before God day and night. This is all verse 10, now verse 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb, meaning as he railed accusation of sin against them, the blood of Jesus had washed those sins away so the accusation can't stick. The, not their endurance, they will endure but it's not their endurance. It's not their, it's not their, 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 um, their perseverance that made them white. It's the blood of the Lamb that made them white. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. And they love not their lives unto the death. So the blood of the Lamb is what Christ did for them. The word of their testimony is the communication of their faith in him, not in themselves. And then because of what his blood did for them through their faith in him, they love not their lives even unto the death. Let's look at a few verses tonight on the blood. It's just important to be reminded about the necessity of the blood of Jesus Christ to wash away sins. We looked at these recently. Colossians chapter 1 verse 14. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7. We have a well-known Calvinistic teacher who teaches that the blood is simply a symbol for the death, that it's, it's just symbolic. So when you speak of the blood, it's just reminding you of the death. And he, makes a, he minimizes the importance of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You realize when we take the Lord's table, there are two elements involved, the broken bread, which represents his death and broken body, but there's also the cup, which represents his shed blood. Without the shedding of blood is no remission. It was not sufficient that Jesus should be hanged by a rope to die for our sins. He had to shed his blood. It is the shedding of blood that deals with our sin, and it's what he did through his shed blood and the payment of that blood that is the paying price to cover and wash away all sins. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. 1 Peter chapter 1, if you would. I just want to read these. We're well, well familiar with these verses, but I want to read them tonight about the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1. His blood is the payment made so that your sins and mine can be forgiven. You know what? You and I need to be reminded of that tonight. When Satan wants you to put confidence in your performance for the assurance of your salvation, you can take him back to the shed blood and say, my, my sin debt has been paid in full. The blood of Christ, sinless, spotless blood was shed and payment has been made in full. No more payment needs to be made for sins. You know what? I praise God we get to come to church. But you know what? If you go to church and you attend church because you're trying to atone for your sins, you're going to get beat down sooner or later. I wouldn't go to church like that. I enjoy being in church with people tonight that are here because you want to be, because you're grateful for what the Lord's done for you. You're not trying to pay God in some way by attending church or giving offerings or helping your neighbor. When we try to pay God some way, we can express gratitude for what he's done but we can never pay him for the forgiveness of our sins. Only the blood of Christ was sufficient to do that, and, and it's been paid. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, For as much as ye know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who by him do believe in God 
that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. And so tonight, the first provision we see that God has made for these his servants is he made them fit to be servants. God's servants wear white robes and those robes are made white through the blood of the lamb. Faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ gives me spotless, sinless. You realize what those robes are? It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They are robed in his righteousness as you and I are. And so then they made their robes white in the blood of the lamb. God gave his servants purity through the blood of Christ. Number two, or letter B, they have the great privilege of serving. Verse 15, it says, therefore, because they're robed in the, in the white robes, therefore are they before the throne of God. They have been qualified and made fit to stand before God's throne and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. Now, it's a Thursday night. Many of you have already worked all day. Many of us have already worked all day. Been a long day, early morning, late evening. How many of you have said, hey, you know what? We have a work project. As soon as we get done here at church tonight, we're going to go out back and we're going to work for another eight hours and try to get that studio finished up tonight. Ready, set, go. You guys be like, you're nuts. I'm going to go home and go to bed. You know what I find out about these servants? They don't get tired. They're serving God day and night. Do you ever have a time where you, were, where you wish you didn't get tired out so you could keep doing some things that need to be done? I used to have a friend of mine, he'd say, man, I wish you could buy time on a credit card. I'd have all mine maxed out. <laughs> eh, it doesn't work that way. You know, in heaven, day and night, it's just a division between day and night, but it's not, you're not measuring years or days anymore. You're not getting tired, not wearing down. You can tell these people here, no, no, now they're serving God Day and night, that's what they are given to completely and entirely. They're serving him day and night in his temple. Here's what I love. And he, and, and he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. You realize there's now perfect unity between God and man. These that are robed in white, God, they're serving God, and they're around his throne, but he's dwelling among them. Man and God in a perfect, a perfect situation. Here are these their existence on earth was among the... You think about being on, in the tribulation and all the wicked things that are taking place, and the, the grace of God removed from, from earth, that general blessing of his grace and mercy, and the plagues are starting, and they graduate from that, and now they get to be with God day and night, and he dwells among them. Uh, the idea would be that that animosity and that separation between God and man through the blood of Christ having made us cleansed, has broken that down and things are now for these folks restored like it was for Adam and Eve in the garden when God would come and his, they would hear his voice in the cool of the evening walking among them, just communing with them. There's no more separation between God and men and so we're getting a clear picture. By the way, when people, you hear things about heaven and the characteristics of heaven, this is where a lot of this comes from and so these are in the present. You know what? <laughs> How do you define heaven? It's not like you can put a longitude and latitude on it. The greatest definition of heaven is it is where the throne of God is. God, that's his abode. That's what makes it heaven. God is there. Amen. And I understand it's far above us. It's, the Bible speaks of it as the third heaven. Um, but it's hard for us to grab and put our minds around it. And so many of the times the descriptions are the fact that this is the abode of God. This is where where holiness dwells, amen? 
And so here they are. You know what these people are? They are very comfortable having the holiness of God. I mean, they, they have been so fully and completely reconciled to God, there is no animosity between them and God. God is dwelling among them. I call this a privilege. They get to serve him day and night as he dwells among them. Uh, isn't that what he did when he left heaven? The Bible says he came and dwelt amongst us. But for the Lord to do that, he had to humble himself, take on the form of a servant. But now God's made us fit to go and dwell with him and he among us where we are in, in heaven with him rather than having him come to, down to us. And so the privilege is they get to serve God day and night and he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. Verse 16, we see he provides for their protection. It says, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. It seems to be an allusion to what they had to suffer before they came to heaven. These are all things characteristic of being on earth. These are things that are the byproduct of persecution and tribulation, hunger. The Bible speaks of hunger and nakedness in Romans chapter 8, that they can't separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. May I say, the things, some of the worst things we experience on this earth under a sin-cursed earth, the Bible says once you're in the presence of God, no more. No more hunger. No more thirst. By the way, when the Lord Jesus Christ came into a sin-cursed world, did he excuse himself from those things? The Bible says, he being weary with his journey sat thus on the well and said to the woman, give me to drink. On the cross, he said, I thirst. He came to earth where all these, these human experiences, the painful consequences of sin that we have to deal with, hunger and thirst, when you're dying, your body starts to give up. You get thirsty and you, you, your, your body ceases to function as it should. We feel, listen, we feel the pains of sin in this earth. But you know what? In heaven, in God's presence, they are no more. We, we need to get a hold of this. There is so much preaching today on how to have a better time on earth and so little emphasis on the glories of heaven. We are to get our focus where it belongs. I was the other night listening to a preacher. Boy, I tell you, he sets me on fire. I like listening to him. He, he, just, he gets in the Bible and he reads it and preaches it, and he's talking about the return of Christ. And I'm telling you, I felt as though the ceiling might open right then. I thought, he is really coming. He's really coming. And it ought to make us excited. Because guess what? We get to lead this sin. I'm going to tell you what, I'm 42 pushing to 43, and the longer I live, the more experienced in this life, the more you see the heartaches, pains, and woes of sin in this world. Not there. Not in the presence of God. You live your life for present comfort, for present happiness, and the longer you live, the more you'll lose what you're trying to keep. It's exactly what Jesus meant. He that saveth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth, loseth his life for my sake shall find it. How many of you know these people lost their lives for Christ? Literally. Only to step into his presence and find what they lost. Eh? They lost comfort. They lost peace. They lost protection because they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the moment that all that the earth did to them destroyed them, supposedly it just put them right into the very life he had for them. And so then, so many times tonight, we're clinging to something that we're going to lose anyway. 
I'm going to try to get it straight, but I love that, that quote uh, by Jim Elliott. He is no fool who spends that which he cannot, or who, who spends that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. That's so true. And here you have people, no more hunger, no more thirst. That's, God says, I'm going to protect you. You'll never have to worry about that again. No more tribulation. You came out of it. You're never going to go into it again. Neither thirst anymore, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. And so the, 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 the abuse of nature on them, no, not anymore. No, that's over. And then we see he gives them, verse 17, preservation, which we alluded to at the beginning by dealing with the seal placed on them. But this is a different, in it, from a different light. It says, for the lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them. Meaning, the Lord Jesus Christ, the lamb, is the shepherd. Isn't that amazing? The lamb is the shepherd. and He's going to feed them uh, and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters. That living means they never dry up. They never run out. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to perpetually, he said, I am the bread of life. He that, he that believeth on me shall never hunger. He that cometh to me shall never thirst. If any man thirst, let him come to me. You realize once we're in the presence of God that the, the hunger and thirst that a physical body knows will not know there because Christ himself is going to see to it that we're never hungry and we're never thirsty. I find it interesting that it explains it this way. It does not say there is no need to be fed. You notice that? It doesn't say there's not a need to be fed. So what we're finding is not what you might imagine is in the glorified body, you just don't need food. That's not what it says. It just says that the constant source of your supply is Jesus Christ. And because he cannot fail, you'll never hunger. So he'll constantly feed you and the waters are constantly there and he'll lead you to living fountains of waters and so that you're never going to hunger or thirst, meaning what, what the world does through sin, Christ has fully conquered and is sufficient to meet that need. Again, you might just think, well, automatically there's no need for food. No, it is that that need is completely and fully satisfied in the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. We must understand the glory of heaven is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, the provision for his servants is purity, white robes, privilege. They're in his presence day and night serving he in the midst of them, among them. Protection from the elements and from the natural consequences of a sin-cursed world. Preservation through feeding and giving them waters. I, th- I love the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And he talks about, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. And he says in the very end, uh, thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. My cup runneth over Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, eternity. He will satisfy the soul here. But how many know this? There are some things in this life. So let's, we're applying this to the physical hunger and physical thirst. There'll be none of that in heaven. The Lord himself will feed us. But how many of us also know there are certain things in this life we will leave this life without getting the answers to? Meaning what our, our minds hunger for, answers that we long for. And we just have to say, there's some things I'll just, I don't know. But you realize in heaven, it's not going to be that way. Our, not only will our, our needs be satisfied, I don't understand the whole idea of a glorified body. I know we'll have one like his. I know this, in his glorified body, what the Lord did, he ate a broiled fish and a honeycomb. In his glorified body. So he'll provide for our physical feeding, but there's also going to be no want, 
of, of, of light. There'll be no darkness, not physically or spiritually, because the Lamb himself, the Bible tells us, is the light of the city. So we're not left in the dark with a hungry soul without solutions and answers. Christ feeds us and satisfies us. And then finally, we see that he provides for his servants not only purity, privilege, protection, preservation, verse 17, the end, peace. It says, and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Now, many other preachers have made this point. They say there's no weeping in heaven. And that's not what it says. There has to be at some point because he has to wipe them away. <laughs> Something does cause tears, but once they're wiped away, then there's no more weeping. Revelation 21 says there'll be no more weeping, no more crying. Meaning all the things that break your heart here, not there. What you think about tonight about what causes you to have tears? I've had times where I've had tears over my own foolishness and sin. Bitter tears. I've had tears over somebody else's sin. I've had tears over losing loved ones. I've had tears over disappointment, tears over weariness, just being worn down. Not there. It wipe away all tears. Meaning, you know, we're getting the picture. Once you're in his presence, the curse of sin and all its consequences are gone. Here's, here's how it happens. Salvation is multifaceted. The first thing God saves us from is the penalty of sin. It's what forgiveness does. You have to have forgiveness. And we refer to that as salvation. That's correct. We are saved from the penalty of sin. But you realize we're also saved from the power of sin. And as we learn to live for Christ, once you get a hold of what he did in forgiving you, you realize that by your forgiveness, you have victory over sin's power over you. And that's a learning process called sanctification. We have victory or we have been saved from the power of sin. But you realize one day we'll be fully saved from the very presence of sin. Don't, don't you think we got something to look forward to? You, you know who has a hard time looking forward to heaven? Those who are still a little too attached to their sin. That's the truth. And that's why sometimes when we first get saved, we're glad to be saved. But let me put it to you this way. When God brought Israel out of Egypt, did he just bring them out so they were no longer slaves and say, well, now you're free, go find your way? Or did he bring them out to bring them in? He said, I'm bringing you out of Egypt because I want you to live in Canaan. Now, Canaan was not a picture of heaven, but a picture of the victorious Christian life. When God saved you, he saved you out of the world. You were a slave to sin. The world owned you because the God of this world owned you. And through your faith in Jesus Christ shed blood, just as they had faith in the Passover lamb and the blood over the doorpost, you were brought out of Egypt. It has been said this, God got Israel out of Egypt overnight, but it took him 40 years to get Egypt out of them. Hmm? That your wilderness experiences as a Christian, God trying to get the world out of your heart. For 40 years, they kept saying, well, maybe we should just go back. Maybe we should just go back and serve the Egyptians. Maybe we should just go back and serve the Egyptians. Maybe we should just go back and serve the Egyptians. And as you read that narrative, you want to say, what is wrong with you people? Same thing is wrong with us people. God saves us and he says, I want you to get your sights on what I have for you in eternity. 
once you and I realize he gave us something eternal, the trash of this earth becomes just that. You know what Paul did when he got a hold of eternal life? He counted his pedigree as dung. He says, it doesn't matter what I was born as. I am now in Christ, meaning my pedigree is worthless compared to my position in the family of God in Christ Jesus. My education, Paul had probably doctorates of divinity if we understand his education level. He used his education, but he counted as nothing but dung. He says, no, that I may win Christ. You see, when, when we can compare and get our focus on eternity and what God has prepared for us in heaven, then this life pales in comparison. Christian tonight, we must get out of love with this world. 1 John 2, 15 and 16, love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I love these verses and I repeat them often together because we need to think about it. The Lord Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, that you cannot serve God and mammon. You have to love the one, hate the other, cleave the one, despise the other, but you can't serve them both. Mammon being earthly possessions, money, and all that it can purchase and possess. Colossians chapter 3, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above more than on things of the earth. You realize how God always makes it an either or? Always. There's no exception to that rule. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Paul said that he was crucified with Christ. What do you mean by that? He said that by the cross of Christ, he was crucified to the world and the world was crucified to him. Meaning the world says, we have no use for you. And the world said, and I have no use for all of this. Paul said, no use for all of this. He loved people because he loved souls, but he was no longer attached to the world once the cross got a hold of his heart. You with me tonight? These that we find tonight that came out of great tribulation, what the Bible is telling us, they now have what they did not have when they were on this earth. Let's go to John 16. We'll close there tonight. I think no better verse to conclude this tonight. John chapter 16. There are levels of tribulation. The Bible says these came out of great tribulation, alluding to the great tribulation. But you know, even Christians have types of tribulation. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 3, 12, Yea, and all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So at some level, you're going to have to pay in this life not for your salvation, but because you're in Christ. Because the world is against Christ, the world's going to be against us. The Lord Jesus said this in John 16, 33. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Here's what the carnal believer does. If we're, when we're carnally minded meaning our sins have been forgiven, we've been born again, but we are still very attached in our heart to earthly things. We try to develop a Christianity that is free from tribulation in this life. It can't be done. What happens is we produce a Laodicean mentality. I do believe this. I believe how much of what is called Christianity is being carried out in America today is, is the result of people figuring out how to have a crossless Christianity. How can I have Christ as my Savior without having to pay from those who hate him for my relationship with him? How can I follow him afar off, maintaining my comfort and my distance while 
soothing my conscience. And what it ends up with is defeated Christians. I find these in Revelation chapter 7. Oh, no, no. They, they did not look for their bliss on this earth. because They didn't get it. They set their affection on things above. And then when they were there, what we find is God had provided for them. By the way, when we're in heaven, the same things are provided for us. But I believe this is here. This is here to help us understand what we're really living for. and What we're looking forward to is not this dream life on earth. We're not, listen, friends, we're not under the teachings of Walt Disney. We're under the teachings of Jesus Christ. We're not to follow our dreams. We're to live for eternity. Amen? And if eternity is not true and heaven is not real and what's described in Revelation 7 is not literal, then our Bible's fraudulent and our God is not who we say he is and our faith is in vain. But because none of that's true, our faith is not in vain. And oh, how we ought to look not at the things which are seen, but those things which are not seen. Shouldn't we live for the world where there's no more crying, where tears are wiped away, and where we're going to serve God day and night? Shouldn't we say, you know what, that's what I'm looking forward to. Not the next election cycle. That's what I'm looking forward to. Amen. May God help us tonight to be, to learn of what we have to look forward to. Uh, when one day we'll be in his presence day and night. He's provided for our purity. One day we'll have the privilege not only of serving him for a period of time or a season of life, day and night forever with him in our very presence, him feeding us. You know what? In heaven, you'll never have to earn another paycheck. You're, you're with the bank account. Amen? He'll feed you and water you, and your soul will be completely and utterly, fully satisfied being in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father,